Can we pray together? Father, this is your word. And it is by no means an easy word. It's not easy for us to hear. Even more difficult for us to think about how we would walk in obedience to this word. Even more difficult to actually walk in obedience to this word. But God, remind us today that your word is beautiful. Your ways are right and just. And as your people, we have been called to a holy life. So teach us this day, we pray, Father God. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. been my practice since uh, my days in seminary. I came under conviction during those days that the majority of my ministry would be spent uh, teaching and preaching through books of the Bible. Uh, Those that have been in my youth ministry know that that's the majority. Every once in a while I'll stray from that, but the majority of my time has been spent exploring whole books of the Bible, which is a, I think, a great method. I'm not saying it's the only way to do it. That's just the way that I felt convicted to do it. But sometimes it brings you to some weird places, uh, especially on a day like today. This is Father's Day. We all know uh, this is Father's Day. If you don't know by now, it's Father's Day if you haven't already got that. And I was looking at this passage a couple of weeks ago, seeing where it was going to fall and just going, really, God? I mean, prostitutes and beasts, sexual immorality, really? For Father's Day? I mean, we already had a message about uh, pornography on Mother's Day. Kent Miller preached that one. I'm not responsible for that. But really, on Father's Day, you're going to have me to preach this. And I read that thing. I read through chapters 17 and 18. And about the third time through reading through that, I came under a deep conviction that has brought me to this very moment. Dads, hear me. We need Revelation 17 and 18 more than anything else right now. That's my conviction. So I come to you this morning, and I don't say this every week. I'm just under a deep conviction right now that we are in desperate need of this word as fathers. Now that moms, that doesn't mean you get to kick it back in a spiritual lazy boy this morning. Kids, that doesn't mean you get to turn off your ears. But it does mean I have a message for fathers today from what seems like a very unlikely passage for a Father's Day message, but I can't get away from the fact that in so many ways we are living in Babylon. And we need to get out. The title of today's message is Getting Out of Babylon. To understand what it means to get out of Babylon, you first have to understand what Babylon is. It's referred to here in chapter 17, chapter 18, into chapter 19. We're going to see this. And Babylon stands here as a metaphor, as a, as a symbol for something in our world that we all ought to realize, all ought to recognize and, and know fully, but so many times we just ignore it. We As I said, I'm living in Babylon, and we don't even realize it. What is Babylon? I believe Babylon is a symbol, a metaphor for the anti-God world system. Now, the Bible talks a lot about the world. And there are at least three ways that the Bible refers to and uses the term the world in the Scriptures. Sometimes the Bible talks about the world as the world of mankind, like John 3.16 when it says, for God so loved the world, right? And there it's talking about the world of all mankind, all peoples, tribe, tongue, language, and nation. That is the world that God loves so much that he sent his one and only son into the world to die in the place of sinners so that we could have eternal life. All who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There's that world and the scriptures the world that God loves the world of mankind 
There's also the created world. The Bible sometimes talks about the world as, as this planet, the world in which we live, that the world was created to reflect the glory of God, to show the majesty of God, to show his power and his creativity. The created world is another way in which the Bible uses this term. But I would say the most predominant use of the world in the scriptures is this. It's Babylon. It's the anti-God world system. It's what John talks about as an epistle when he says, don't love the world or the things of this world. Anyone who loves this world, the love of the Father, is not in him. And some people get confused by that. They take, John, they take 1 John there and they line it up with John 3.16 and they go, but wait a minute, God loves the world, but we're not supposed to love the world? How does that work out? We're talking about two different worlds here. This world is the anti-God world system in which we live. The Bible says that we have three basic enemies as followers of Jesus Christ. We have the devil, we have our flesh, and we have the world. And that's what we're talking about here, the anti-God world system in which we live. Let's talk for a moment about the foundation of this world, the foundation of Babylon. It's the first point on your outline there. We see some of it here in Revelation 17. We see even more of it if we go back to the book of Genesis. You know, well, where does that come from? Well, I believe that everything that we believe as Christians finds its foundation in the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. In the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, we learn how these things came to be, how this world came to be. Now, science will tell us that there was a billions of years evolutionary process. That's not what the Bible teaches. And you have to choose for yourself whether you're going to trust the God who made it or the scientists who are trying to figure it out. First child chapters of Genesis tells us how we were created as human beings. We were created to have communion and fellowship with God. We were created to reflect his glory as image bearers, as bearers of his image. We were created for the purpose of glorifying God. First five chapters of Genesis also tells us about sin and its effects as it enters in there in Genesis chapter 3. I believe that everything that we believe as Christians finds its foundational component in those first 12 chapters. And what we're going to talk about with Babylon is no different. It finds its basis in Genesis chapter 11. You see, Babylon began at a place you may have heard of called Babel. You remember the Tower of Babel. This is no folklore or fairy tale in real time in a real place. After the flood, Noah came off the ark, and the people did well for a little while, but then they got a scheme in their mind. That's where a lot of sin begins, doesn't it? A scheme in our mind that began to take place. And the people decided that they were going to go against the plan and purpose of God that God had given to Noah, which was really just a recapitulation of what he had given to Adam, that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the people said, we don't really want to do what God wants us to do. We want to go our own way, do our own thing. And so the Tower of Babel happened as they gathered in this place. The word Babel is composed of two Hebrew words. The first three letters, Bab, refers to the gate of. That's a Hebrew word meaning the gate to or the gate of. And anytime you see El in a word in the Bible, it's referring to God. So Babel literally means the gate to or the gate of God. And that's what they were seeking to build as they all gathered in this one place. And and we see here they had a very particular theme, Genesis 11, 4. Let me put it on the screen for you so that you can see it. Here was their theme. Genesis 11, 4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city. Doesn't sound bad, right? We could say it again. Come, let us build ourselves a tower with its top in the heavens. Doesn't sound too bad so far. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. We could see a little problem there maybe, but still... Doesn't sound too bad. And then we don't see any problem at all with the last part, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You can jerk this scripture out of its context and you go, well, what's the problem? Build a city, build a tower, make a name for ourselves. You know, it's this, this all sounds fine and good, you know, not be dispersed over the whole earth. They wanted to be together. This sounds like good stuff, right? Only in its context, it was outright rebellion against God. 
That's all was going on there at the Tower of Babel. God had said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You're meant to carry my image into the uttermost parts of the earth to display my glory over the face of this whole globe. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. We would rather just get together here in Babel, build a city for ourselves, build a tower that reaches up into the heavens where we might go. The thought being that they would climb that tower to the heavens, dethrone God, and take their place there in his throne. And in the core of it was this. And folks, this could be the theme of our culture right now. Let us make a name for ourselves. Isn't that what people are all about today? Let's make a name for ourselves. I want to get my 15 minutes of fame. I want to get my name on the front page. Let them make a name for myself. I want to do something where I'll be remembered. There's an old preacher who said his life's goal was this. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. You don't hear that much anymore, do you? No, it's make a name for ourselves. It's, I want to build up my name. I want to show people how great I am, how smart I am, how popular I am, how athletic I am, how I have created all these great things. I want to do this not to glorify the God who made me and meant for me to display his glory, but that I would do this for my own glory, make a name for myself. And that's the foundation of Babylon. Because you see the... The gate to God, as it was known, became also a synonym for great confusion as God scattered them across the face of the earth. You see, what we learn from Babel is this. The will of God is going to be done. You can mark that down. If you don't take anything else away from the Father's Day message today, you might want to take this. The will of God is going to be done. It will either be done with your cooperation or it will be done against your rebellion. And that's what happened at Babel. God said, you're going to go and, and fill the whole earth. And so he scattered them from that place. He confused their languages. That's where we get the term Babel. He confused their language where they could no longer understand one another. And now we have the language barrier in the world as a result of Genesis chapter 11. But the basis there was utter rebellion against God. That's the foundation of Babylon. And that's what we see in Revelation 17 and 18. Let's move on from there and see the features of this Babylon. The features of Babylon. It's ugly. This is not a pleasant message to bring on Father's Day when we're supposed to be exalting our dads and thanking God for our dads. But dads, we need to see this in its reality. We need to see this as it describes our culture. I think you could take the USA Today from this week and you could lay it beside Revelation 17 and 18 as I have actually done. And you can see these elements rampant in our culture. You can see these features as if we were looking at ourselves in the pages of Scripture. Let me just say before we talk about these features, I believe that we are living in a Babylonian culture. Here are the features, and you can judge for yourself. First of all, it's a culture of rampant sexual immorality. That may sound like a strong use of words, but this is what I see, folks. You can't escape it. You can't go through the checkout line at the grocery store to buy your hamburgers and buns for your Father's Day celebration without being tempted toward sexual immorality. You can't go anywhere. We're going to be going to Louisville this week on a mission trip, and I already know that there are going to be billboards up on that city that are going to tempt us toward things that we should not be tempted toward of the sexual nature. It's everywhere. It's no longer just in those TV shows that come on after 10 o'clock like it was when I was growing up. Now it's in the commercials that are happening all throughout the day. It is everywhere. We are living in a place where sexual immorality has become the norm to the point where it's celebrated. And that's what we see here in this chapter. It's over and over and over. It begins with this prostitute. And you see the term sexual immorality explicitly stated at least a dozen times. And then you see, you see allusions to sexual immorality all throughout these 
chapters, and that's our culture. It's everywhere. Did you know that the average age at which a young man is first introduced to pornography in our culture is age 11? So, dads, that's what this means for you. If you're not already talking to your 10-year-old son about the birds and the bees, you better get on it. Because the world's about to, if they haven't already. One of my best friends let us know that this year his 8-year-old son came home from school one day this past school year and said, Dad, guess what I saw at school today? What's that, son? You know, you expect all kinds of answers. He said, I saw a naked woman at school today. My friend's going, whoa, wait a minute. What, what in the world? Came to discover that on a school-issued iPad, another student had shown him a pornographic picture, eight years old. And when my buddy did what every dad should do in that moment, when he went to the principal and he went as far as the school board to say, what's the deal with this? This should not be happening. He kind of got this response. Boys will be boys. And we minimize sin and we act like it's not a big deal when we have 11-year-olds being exposed to things that are going to twist not just their image of women. I believe pornography twists our image of God, how he's created us. It's evil and it's filthy. And we're seeing our young men being captured by it. Mark Driscoll pastor out in Seattle said these days it's easier to see someone naked than it is to get a coke out of your fridge because you actually have to get up out of the lazy boy to get a coke out of the fridge and folks we invite this into our homes we invite this into our homes and we allow our kids to feast on things that are going to destroy them and we don't give it a second thought because rampant sexual immorality, it's everywhere. And sitting in this room today, I know that there are young men who are struggling with issues of pornography because they've been allowed a gateway to something that's gripped their heart in a way it never should have. And, God, and guys, dads, listen to me. Proverbs tells us, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life and that's your duty as a dad for your kids until the day when they leave your home. Guard their hearts. That's where their life is going to come from and where it's going to go to. So please, don't allow your kid to have a computer in their bedroom. I know some kids are going to get mad at me for saying this. Don't allow your son to have an iPad that he can look at whatever he wants to because it's in us. There's no temptation that's not common to man. We all struggle with lust and they don't need a gateway to it. They're going to struggle enough as it is in this culture. May they not find it in their own bedrooms. I'm going to talk more about that before we finish today. Second thing, second feature of Babylon is rebellious spiritual idolatry. We're living in a culture now that likes to talk about spiritual things. It's becoming more commonplace. Before 9-11, it was very unpopular to talk about spiritual things. It was all about science and reason and logic, and we were kind of secure as Americans and where we were. And then 9-11 happened, and what we should have seen was massive repentance and turning back to God. But instead, what we saw was just a reawakening of the spiritual side of us, a desire for spiritual things. But many of those things had nothing whatsoever to do with the God who gave us that soul in the first place. And that's what we see today. People are open and interested in spiritual things, but most don't want to hear a thing about Jesus. They don't want to hear about the Bible. They don't want any of that. They just want to have that empty soul filled with something. And that's how the Babylonians were. In the Old Testament, it often refers to spiritual idolatry as sexual immorality. You see the book of Ezekiel, there's several chapters given to him describing this grotesque 
sexual immorality in terms of spiritual idolatry. As Grant said earlier, that we sell ourselves to these false gods. It's not just a tasting, it's, it's not just a dabbling, and it's not just a little bit of experimentation, but that we literally, as a prostitute does, we sell ourselves to these false gods. When there's only one God who's worthy of our worship. The final element of Babylon is this. It's ridiculous selfish indulgences. Now, folks, you, you may think I've gone overboard on the first two, but if you don't see this in our culture, we are living in the wealthiest culture that has ever been on the face of this planet. Even if you are living at the poverty line in America, you are wealthier than 90% of the world's population. There are more than a billion people in the world today who live on less than what we would consider to be $2 a day. Do the math on that one. We are living in the wealthiest culture that's ever been. And wealth in and of itself is not the problem. Don't hear me saying that because the Bible verse has already been misquoted a billion times when people say, well, you know the love of the, you know that money is the root of all evil, right? That's not what Scripture says, is it? It says it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. It's when wealth and riches, and as these scriptures say, luxurious living, it says it several times there, chapter 18, verse 3, they'd grown rich from the power of her, Babylon's luxurious living. Folks, we are living in a, a society that's captured with luxuries. Our purchases, for the most part, aren't about what we really need. We we don't even think much about that. We just do that. Most of our purchases are wrapped up in what we want. In fulfilling our desires, we've got to have the latest and greatest. We've got to have the best car. We've got to have the biggest house. And we've got to have more than our neighbors so that they can look at us and they can want more than we have. And then we see they get a new car. I've got to get a new car. And we see they get the new iPhone. I've got to get the new iPhone. And we can just go farther and farther and farther and deeper and deeper in this whole mess. And we don't realize that all the while we are selling our souls to something that's going to only bring destruction. And wealth in and of itself is not the problem. It's that it takes hold of our hearts and takes the place that only God should have. And so here's the picture of Babylon. Rampant sexual immorality, rebellious spiritual idolatry, and ridiculous selfish indulgences. And I'll just say this morning, you judge for yourself. You pull out the paper and see if you don't see those things. You walk around in this world for a little while and see if you don't see those things. And let me give you this challenge. You take a good, hard look at the church today and see if you don't see those things. Because sadly, we don't look much different than the world and the culture around us. But we're meant to. Finally, this morning, you see the fall of Babylon. He promises it. He says it three times. There in verse 2, you see two of those times. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. She's a ghost town. It's the picture here. You look back at the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 5, and you see that Old Testament Babylon fell suddenly. You look at Daniel chapter 5 and what was happening there. You see King Belshazzar, who took over for his grandfather, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the golden age king of the empire of Babylon. And Belshazzar took over, and there was a particular night in Daniel chapter 5 where it says that Belshazzar was throwing a feast to demonstrate his riches, to demonstrate how great of a king he was. He invited all these other dignitaries to come in and to feast with him. And during that feast, the Bible says, that he called for 
those elements from the Jewish temple that his grandfather had taken away from the Jewish temple when, the, when Nebuchadnezzar carried the people away into the Babylonian captivity, he took with him, after destroying the temple, took with him those elements of gold and silver. And his grandson Belshazzar called for those elements, those golden cups and those silver bowls, and said, bring those out here. I want to feast with those. I basically want to spit in the face of the God who says he owns these and show how great I am. I'm going to shake my fist in his face and just say, look at me. You're nothing. I'm King Belshazzar. What are you going to do about that? So they did. They brought out those and they began to feast and to celebrate and to rejoice in their own riches. And the Bible says, this is where you get the idea of the handwriting on the wall. That a hand appeared and began to write a series of words right on the wall of his palace chamber. And it says the King Belshazzar went white as a sheet, and no one could figure out what those words meant. They could read the words, but they couldn't understand the significance of the words until they called in the prophet Daniel. And Daniel came in, and when he saw those words, he was heartbroken because he knew what it meant. He knew that it meant judgment is coming. And it's not going to delay. Judgment is coming now. The hand of God is falling now. The wrath of God is coming now because, King, you've messed up. You've messed with the wrong dude. You see, what history tells us is it was that very night. As Belshazzar was throwing a feast for all of his dignitaries, History tells us that it was that very night that the Persian armies were encircling the great city of Babylon. And Belshazzar knew that they were there, but he wasn't afraid. In fact, he was so unafraid and so bold and prideful in his state that that he threw the feast as a means of saying, what do we have to worry about? Nobody can conquer the city of Babylon. we got walls 30 feet thick. We can drive chariots across the walls of our city. These Persians, they're not going to be able to do anything to us. And just to show you how great we are, I'm going to throw a feast and invite everybody who would otherwise be fearful of the approaching army to come on into my palace and enjoy a party with me. What pride, what arrogance. And history records this exactly What happened that on that very night, the Persian armies conquered the city of Babylon, put Belshazzar to death, and took over the Babylonian Empire and became the next empire in the world? It fell in a night. And folks, we find ourselves living in Babylon. We find ourselves so often living for Babylon. And the reality is that Babylon is going to fall. And it's going to fall suddenly. It's going to fall quickly. And all who find themselves within the walls of the city are going to be in danger of the death and destruction that comes when Babylon falls. See, we think we're fine. We're ready to go to the king's feast, to party it up. We're like Lot when he moved in, the nephew of Abraham, when Abraham's nephew Lot moved into the city of Sodom. He knew the immorality was there. He knew how hideous of a place that was. But he chose to move into the city to dwell among those people. And the night when God's destruction fell on Sodom, he ran out of that city with his tail between his legs, running as fast as he could, all the while destruction was following him, and it destroyed his family. Why do we dwell in Babylon when destruction is coming? Babylon only fell suddenly, but Babylon will fall permanently all throughout the old testament the prophets when they speak about babylon there are constant promises especially in the book of jeremiah there are these constant promises that babylon's going to fall never to rise again 
And some have just taken that to mean the city of Babylon, which once it was destroyed, has never risen to the same kind of prominence that it once had. Now, Alexander the Great, uh, many of you will remember him from history, he tried to rebuild Babylon. He actually died in the process. He actually drank himself to death trying to rebuild Babylon against, if he had just read the Bible, he would have known that he couldn't do that work. But he was trying again to show how great he was, to make a name for himself, to demonstrate his glory. And God said, no. It's not going to happen. But I think there's more to it than just the city of Babylon. I think those Old Testament promises point us to Revelation 17 and 18. The fact that this city is going to fall, this anti-God world system is going to fall, and it's never going to rise again, that this anti-God world system is going to be replaced with The kingdom of God, Jesus Christ as king, and that is what will last forever. And so you find yourself this morning, whoever you are, in whatever relationship you are uh, to God and to his son Jesus Christ this morning, you find yourself between two kingdoms. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to tell you this morning, with fear and trembling, that you are residing fully in Babylon, a city that is going to fall. And all those who take up residence there and fall in love with that great city face the wrath of God and his judgment and the destruction that's yet to come. But see, I fear just as much for those of us that want to live with one foot in Babylon and one foot in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You'll either love one and hate the other, or you'll hate the one and love the other. And believers, would you hear the word of God this morning? Dads, would you hear this word from Revelation 18.4 as we finish up today? Revelation 18.4 It says, just then, I heard another shout out of heaven. I believe this is the voice of Jesus Christ. I won't get into why I believe that, but just take it for what it is for right now. Here's his words. Get out, my people, as fast as you can so that you don't get mixed up in her sins, so you don't get caught in her doom. Don't inch your way out. Don't take a few steps today and then get up tomorrow and take a few more. It's the idea of flee. When the Bible talks about sexual immorality, it doesn't say don't dabble in it. It says flee from sexual immorality. When the Bible pictures idolatry, it doesn't say, well, you know, worship God. And then you can also worship your sports. You can also worship your businesses. You can also worship your wealth and your homes and your families. No, it says flee from that. Get away from it. Get out. When the Bible talks about how we indulge ourselves and we live in this luxurious living, it doesn't say, well, you can do that and still love God. It says, whoever loves the world and the things of this world, the love of God is not in him. And we live these divided lives as if everything is okay and it's not okay. It's not okay. You cannot live with one foot in Babylon and one foot in the kingdom of God and expect that you're not going to lose a leg in the process. Here's the question, dads, for you today. How will you get your family out of Babylon? I encourage you to take this very seriously for a minute. I know Father's Day, we're thinking about cookouts and time out on the boat and all that stuff. Would you for a moment put those thoughts aside and just hear me out? How will you get your family out of Babylon before it's too late? Because Babylon is a place that is destined for destruction. Let me give you five things. These are first steps. I'm not going to get, this is not in-game type stuff. I'm saying these are first steps, first of all. First one is this. I will disconnect to reconnect by unplugging the TV for the month of July and leading meaningful prayer and conversations with my family. Again, first step. I'm not saying if you do that, you're out of Babylon, you're good to go. No. I'm saying this is a first step that I'm begging you to take. 
And I'm putting this on dads, guys. The Bible speaks about us as the spiritual head of our household. It is your responsibility. You can no longer sit back in passivity and look to your wife and think, well, that's her job. It's not her job. It's yours. The question is, will you step up and do it? Or will you sit back in Babylon and think everything's fine? Number two, I will bury busyness by saying no no to that one more thing that's trying to push its way into my schedule and spend more time with my family instead. Our culture tells you that the busier you are, the more important you are. And it's a lie. It is a lie from the pits of hell. Because it's busyness that will lead you straight into those pits if you're not aware and careful. Number three, I will feed our faith by leading our family to prioritize eating dinner at home together around the dinner table at least twice a week and sharing a scripture with our family during those meals. Study after study after study says one of the best things that you can do for your kids is to have family dinners together without the TV on, around your dinner table, and actually talk to each other. It's so simple, but so many of us aren't doing it. We're driving through the McDonald's drive-thru and catching a burger on the way to the next ball game, on the way to the next activity, and years go by where relationships aren't deepening, and we find ourselves at the end of that time going, well, I don't really know my kids. I don't know my spouse anymore either. Because all we've done is run, 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 and we've never run closer to Christ. Dads, make this a priority. Next one's going to touch, touch some toes here. I'll be wary of the web, allowing no one in my home unmonitored access to the Internet. And these last two words are crucial, including myself. If you want to know how to make that happen, come see me after the service. Neil's helped me a lot with this. Man, if you don't already know your propensity to the filth and the pornography that plagues the internet, wake up. And don't put your children in a place where that filth can take hold of their lives. You don't have to. And by the way, it doesn't mean that you have to shut off the internet altogether, though that might be a good idea for some of us. It won't kill you, trust me. And finally, I will sacrifice self-indulgences by purposefully forgoing one luxury we currently enjoy or are looking to add to our home and giving that money to feed the poor. Intentional sacrifice. To say no to something that this culture is urging you to say yes to, the next big thing, the next cell phone, the next, whatever the thing is, it's always, it's always one more thing, isn't it? It's always one more thing, but if you were to look that thing in the face and say, no, and instead I'm going to give that money to feed the poor, not because I'm really pious and holy, but because I'm denying myself and taking up the cross and following him, and I love him, far more than I'll ever love this Babylon. Unless we all end in just a heavy place, let me leave you with 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. I've already referenced this verse, but I want us to look at it together as we end. He says, I write to you fathers, dads, hear this word to you today. John says, I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Dad, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then this is on you. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Are you hearing those words? Is that God's truth to you? And the world is passing away along with his desires. But listen to this promise, Dad. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He will either live for 
the temporary trappings of this Babylonian culture that are certainly passing away. It'll fall suddenly, and it'll fall permanently, and if you are caught up in it, you will experience destruction. And you would look, some of us would look at a story like Lot, Abraham's nephew, and go, but, but Lot was saved, right? He got out of Sodom. Well, yeah, but look at the destruction that followed his life. Look what happened with him and his daughters. If you don't know that story, you need to look it up. It's in the book of Genesis. See the destruction that came because he dwelt far too long in a place he was never meant to abide. So dads, I'd say it's on you this morning. Give your family a gift far greater than any they will give you today. And here's how we're going to do it. Made up some cards that have those five commitments. And I'm going to urge every dad in this room to make at least one. And don't make the one that you think's the easiest. You look at which one of those five is the most difficult, and may that be your offering of worship to your God this morning. For the sake of your family, yes, but even more so for the sake of your own soul, that we would not sell ourselves to a culture that is fading, passing away, and leading us into death and destruction, but that we would give our lives fully to God. So as our worship team comes, I'm going to spend just a couple of moments in prayer. And I want to invite you, these cards are, are all across the front up here this morning. I challenge you to do this. Grab a pen and grab one of these cards. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to initial beside at least one of these things. You may be able to do all five. Praise God for that. But I want to challenge you to do the one that's the hardest for you. There would be a real sacrifice to God for the sake of your family, for the sake of your soul, as a gift to them on Father's Day, and as a word of praise to Almighty God who saved you from death and destruction so that you could have life in Him, so that you could abide with Him forever. So dads, I invite you to respond. If that means you need to drag your family down here for some time in prayer together, you do that. Whatever it means for you, I'm urging you to act today. Get out of the spiritual lazy boy and get to work. Your family needs you. Father, help us. Help us to respond. For far too long, God, we have been living with one foot in Babylon and one part way into your kingdom. And God, help us to get out of Babylon. to demonstrate our love for you. By running away from the things of this world that would bring us to destruction, that would take hold of the hearts of our kids and lead them to destruction. God, help us. Help us to lead our families. We don't know how to do this apart from you, but because of your Holy Spirit in us, God, would you empower us? Would you encourage us? And would you direct us? And maybe we be steadfast today, God, with the commitment that we would make. Because most of all, you're worthy. You're worthy of every one of the things on this card and a billion more. So help us, God. Respond as your spirit leads us today. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We'll stand and sing. Dads, I invite you to respond this morning.
we be seated for just a minute? Dads, let me just say, if you've experienced the heaviness of this message today, I want you to know it's been very heavy on my heart. There are some messages that you preach and then you just kind of go on to the next one. This is not one that I'm going to go on from for a while. I just want to encourage you today. If the Spirit of God is residing in you, you can do this. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing in terms of getting yourself out of Babylon. But you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And that verse is worth way more than just a bumper sticker. And I want to encourage you today, take this card, take it home, put it on your refrigerator, put it on your, on your mirror, put it somewhere, put it on your steering wheel of your car where you're going to be constantly reminded if you've made a commitment to God today that that would be lived out in your life. No matter how painful it might be, I can guarantee you this. No pain that you will endure in leading your family will even hold a candle to the kind of pain that will come if you stay in Babylon. If your kids stay in Babylon and God has given you as a dad the God-given opportunity, responsibility, and obligation to lead your family. And so lead them to love Jesus and lead them to live for Him in the face of a culture that says, well, that just looks stupid. Why would you turn off your TV? Why would you forego luxury? Why would you do any of those things? Let your answer be this. Because I love Jesus. Because I love Him more than anything else. You can do this but only if the Spirit of God is dwelling in you.
We're getting ready tomorrow morning to take a, a mission trip uh, to the city of Louisville. There'll be 27 of us going. I want to invite if you're going to the Louisville mission trip, you'll join me up at the front here. I want you to see some of these folks. Anybody that's going on the Louisville mission trip, you'll stand up and come up here with me just for a minute. There are some prayer cards uh, as you exit today. and The roll-down window that's just to your right as you exit. There's some prayer cards there. If you commit to pray for these folks this week, that'll be a good reminder for you to list all of our names and some specific prayer requests that we're asking. Most thing, biggest thing we're asking is this. We want to have opportunities to share the gospel and the courage to do it. That's the biggest thing. That's what we've been praying for. We've gone through some training to help us know how to share the gospel. And now we just want to have opportunities, which we know we will, but even more so the courage to step out and to share Christ with those that we come in contact with this week. And so you pray for us in that. Grab one of those prayer cards as you leave today. And let's pray for these folks this morning and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for being our everlasting Father, perfect in all of your attributes. And as we look to you sometimes, God, we can get overwhelmed and we should be overwhelmed, overwhelmed by your glory and overwhelmed by your grace that you would call us, that you would call us out of the darkness of our sin into your marvelous light, that you would call us to serve you. And we pray, God, for these to be going to Louisville this week. God, we pray that you would use this mission team in powerful ways. I thank you for the many on this trip. This is going to be their first mission trip experience, God. And I pray that your spirit would overwhelm us, that we would be completely amazed for the things that you do this week through us. And give us, give us those opportunities to share the gospel this week, God, and give us the courage to do what you've called us to do. Lord, last of all, I continue, God, to pray for dads here in this room that as fathers we would step up to the plate this very week and knock one out of the park, not to make a name for ourselves, but to show how great your name truly is and to demonstrate our love for you as we lead our families. to love you more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Father's Day.